0: And welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host, and it's March 2nd, 2012. Who is that low-energy, uninformed imposter? And that music? It's May 31st, 2021. This week's show may be from the Deep Archive, but that doesn't mean we bring back a host from Six Feet Under. Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdominal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd get slapped with a diagnosis of Takayasu's Arteritis if you inflamed me with the idea that you missed this week's show. BFD, Board Financial's Dilemma. What do you do for board members who can't read your balance sheet? The authors of The Board Members' Easier-Than-You-Think Guide to Nonprofit Finances can answer that. Andy Robinson and Nancy Wasserman explain why understanding finances is critical so board members preserve your good work and protect themselves. Do their eyes glaze over when the numbers come out? We'll help your board achieve financial literacy. Yes, this originally aired on March 2nd, 2012. That was show number 81. This is show number 540. So take a trip back with me in time. Of course, in 2021, your board members still need to understand your financials. On Tony's Take 2, Planned Giving Accelerator. We're sponsored by Turn 2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits, your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. Here is BFD, Board Financial's Dilemma. Andy Robinson provides training and consulting for nonprofits in fundraising, board development, marketing, and earned income. He specializes in the needs of groups working for human rights, social justice, environmental conservation, historic preservation, and community development. Nancy Wasserman has over 25 years of experience in community finance and social enterprise development. Her particular skill is working with clients on projects that must satisfy both financial and social or community goals. They worked together to co-author the book, the board members easier than you think guide to fund to nonprofit finances. It's published by Emerson and Church, and I'm very glad that their collaboration brings them both to the show. Andy, Nancy, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Tony.
0: Pleasure to have you both. Uh, Andy, pleasure to have you back. It's good to talk with you again. Uh, Thank you. Um, Nancy, why is this important for board members to care about uh, the financial condition of a charity?
2: Um, Because uh, that's really what your charge is as a board member. You have the responsibility to make sure the organization... Um, is achieving its mission, and the best way to do that is to make sure it has the resources it needs to do it, Um, and the the financial statements and the nonprofit finances is how you know um, pretty quickly what's going on, um, especially if you've you've got that information. You also have some responsibilities to the community um, to deliver a nonprofit that does achieve its mission and does it in a responsible and uh, fiduciary, fiduciary uh, appropriate way.
0: So board members are have a fiduciary duty to the charity, right?
2: Absolutely, to the charity and to the the public at large.
0: Okay, and uh, so why do you say the public at large? why, why do you say um, that?
2: Because the, the uh, in the U.S. the um, Internal Revenue Service typically gives charities a, um, a a non-profit designation, which allows them to receive contributions and issue um, tax-deductible receipts. Right. And um, because they the U.S. is foregoing that um, tax. Um, on those on those dollars and giving the public a public benefit, um, the IRS exercises oversight of um, nonprofit charities and makes sure that they really are um, delivering on their charitable purpose.
0: All right, so there is some public money in here. It's, um, it's there, foregone there, foregone it, tax revenue.
2: At, at at a bare minimum, often there's also uh, direct public money from uh, government grants or um, government contracts
0: and how about um financial problems that can occur within the within the um within the charity like um you bring out an example in your book of uh people not getting their salaries paid things like that
2: you know you there is that that oversight potential here you you are running a small business and um You want to make sure that your employees are well cared for, that you're achieving your mission in in the world at large. Um, Sometimes in in charities we'll see folks, um, you know, giving up salary um, and or um, deferring payment um, out of the the goal of achieving the mission of the organization in the long term. um, That seriously hurts the organization because um, people aren't really watching what's happening with the money. Where is it coming in? Where is it going out?
0: And Andy, um, isn't there potential personal liability for board members when when there are problems like this, like Nancy's describing?
1: Well, let me first do the disclaimer here, which is that neither Nancy nor I are attorneys, and we can't give people legal advice.
0: Okay. Well, I there's no, yeah, I know. and we have Nobody's given you a. I don't. The listeners have not given you a uh, a retainer fee. So. Not yet. No. Okay.
1: <laughs> I will say this: um, if there is non-payment of payroll taxes, for example, if a organization goes into debt, doesn't pay the IRS or state taxing agencies, board members are individually liable for that. Um, most, most expenses board members are protected from being personally liable on, but there are some exceptions. So I don't know that that's what drives this conversation. I mean, if board members are simply looking at the balance sheet as a way of making sure that they're not personally liable. I mean, that's one level on this conversation, but there's a whole lot more levels having to do with the stuff that Nancy was talking about. Yeah. Are we being efficient? Are we meeting our mission? Are we tracking our work so that we know we're being effective? And that's really what financial management is about.
0: Indeed. Okay. Yeah, there's a whole, certainly a whole spectrum of reasons why board members should care. I just wanted to bring out the, the, the last one, which is there is the potential of of personal liability um, let 's see. Um, we have just about a minute before a break, and i 'm hoping uh, nancy why don 't you introduce the idea of the the financial dashboard and then we 'll talk a lot more about it right after this break.
2: Sure. Um, the financial dashboard is something we introduced that that really gives you a one page sense of um, how 's the organization doing what what i 've found happens with a lot of nonprofits is that they um, they give their boards just reams of paper and um, all of a sudden you get the budget and the the performance and the balance sheet and there's 15 pages of financial statements and most board members, even ones who do know how to read financials, don't plow their way through it. And so the dashboard is is essentially a one-page opportunity to get a sense of um, how are you operating financially, are you being efficient, and um, are you having an impact?
0: Andy, I want to throw a question to you quickly. We got a, a question on Twitter from Mazarine. What if an executive director was found stealing? One of the things Nancy and I were talking about, uh, that kind of fraud issues uh, earlier. Um, would you give them a second chance?
1: Oh, boy. Um, well, I'd be curious to hear Nancy's answer to this. My initial response, no, followed by it depends. And um, I actually was on the board of an organization... We found the opposite problem, which was the board <laughs> executive director was pouring money into the organization. He emptied out his retirement account, but he wasn't telling anybody.
0: Mm.
1: He mm. did this because um, the grants weren't coming through, and he was too embarrassed. So, to so that's a
0: that's that a that's a problem of being overgenerous, though.
1: He was paying for it himself. Yeah, we ended up firing the guy. Yeah, and the reason was he wasn't disclosing to the board what the board needed to do its job
0: right right and
1: i would say the issue in that case isn't so much as uh, misdirection lying so i am i am you know obviously theft is a bad thing but the board needs full disclosure from the executive director to be able to do their job well and
0: I, that's really where i would go on that and how about you Nancy? Uh um I, I, Andy was I would, curious to hear your answer. and I, I yeah, am too. Yeah, no,
2: I would say um again uh like Andy, it depends. Um probably depending on the the amount of severity and and the situation. Um you know, if if the uh, executive director was borrowing uh, $20 from the petty cash um when they forgot to bring um their wallet to work one day um clearly that's not not egregious enough to to fire somebody but if uh they're helping themselves to the uh to the uh, checking account and um redirecting grants into their own bank account yeah, um, yeah probably cause to to fire them
0: even if they pay it back, right? That really, even if they pay it back with interest. That really doesn't you know, matter, does it?
2: I mean, the thing about nonprofits is, is, you know, they're not your own private fiefdom or your own private no. business. They're a, they're a community um, engagement where the reason, you know, you have a, a board of directors that um, are the final legal responsibility for the organization. Um, so you, you really shouldn't be operating it like your own private business.
0: Let's talk uh, a little about this, uh, the, the dashboard now, Nancy, the financial dashboard uh, that we introduced earlier. Um, it's a one-pager, which I think will be a relief to people, they're not getting a sheath of financial uh, forms and, and, and uh, balance sheets, but wh- what, what do you think, what are key parts that should be in this financial dashboard that, uh, to, to sort of streamline the, uh, the overview for, for board members?
2: Um, I, I would say that, that there's really three parts to it. There's a financial part where you're looking at, you know, sort of what's our total budget. Um, you know, every board member of every organization should be able to very quickly say whether the organization is a $300,000 a year organization or a $5 million a year organization. That's sort of a basic um, sense of scale. Um, are we making money or not? Um, do we have net income? Um Uh, do we have cash on hand those kinds of questions Um, do we uh, do we have net worth are we you know if everything had to be liquidated today um, would there be any any money left over or any value left over um, that that was tangible value not just uh, goodwill We'd also want to be looking at, at how efficient the organization is and efficiency changes depending on what the organization does. It's it's really a sense of being able to measure you, you against yourself or against industry standards. Um, and it's, you know, the, the level of what it costs to deliver um, services, for example, to severely challenged populations versus what it takes to deliver services to um, highly educated people in uh, an urban area where they're all e- easily able to get to something. Um, the cost levels are going to be different, and, and we're not saying that they should be the same, but to know um, what it costs for you to serve your clients, um, what it costs to have volunteers, um, and then the impact. And I don't know, Andy, if you want to talk a little bit about that. Well, impact
1: uh, how you measure whether you're meeting your mission or not. And there are often numerical measures that you can think about. You know, if you're a land trust, how many acres are you preserving? If you do mentoring with children, how many adult children matches do you have? Uh, Sometimes this is long-term tracking, which is hard for grassroots organizations to do, but in most fields there are ways of measuring your impact in terms of the number of clients you're serving or the number of audience members who are involved. And hopefully there's some measures that you can come up with that the quality of your work as well. Okay. So The principle the- here is we could get this all on one page. You would have data from two years ago. You'd have data from last year. You'd have data from the current year. You could lay them out and see what the trends are.
0: All right. That's the financial dashboard. And I love how you guys have this little dance worked out, where Nancy talks about the financial and efficiency parts, but then she throws it over to her co-author, uh, Andy, for impact, and you have it all worked out, sort of, sort of taking the show over. But it's okay. In, it's in a good way. Um, which which uh, leads me to a question. All right, so I have to ask: when two of, when you co-author a book, how do you decide whose name comes first? Did you just do alphabetical order, or did you flip a coin? Or how, see, I'm too narcissistic to co-author with anybody. But but how did you guys work that out? Who? How did you decide that?
2: See, Andy Andy's alphabetically first on first names, on last names, uh. and. Um, The honest truth is, is he did um, a lot of the writing work, um, whereas I did uh, helped him with content. So it was very easy for Andy to go first.
0: All right. So if I had come in, you wouldn't have looked only at Martinetti. You would have also looked at Tony, and then I'd have fallen maybe to the bottom, uh, which is probably where I I wouldn't have had much to contribute to this. So you were wise not to take me on, even though I pitched you. You were wise.
1: Uh, your name is well-known in a certain community. We might have put you first on
0: the book. (laughs) (laughs) No, your publisher would never have approved that. Um, One of the questions that we asked before the show that relates to what we're talking about now is, um, do you believe all your board members have at least a general understanding of your financial position? And 70% said yes, 30% said no. So that's a pretty good 70%, but the 30%, they're not really very confident. Right. A general, and that was just a, for a general understanding. Um, okay, so the uh, that's the dashboard. Um, Andy, should these things be devoted only to the uh, the authority of a of a finance committee?
1: No, I mean I think a really good use of a finance committee is to boil stuff down. So the rest of the board can understand it. Provide and support to the rest of the board serve as mentors and backups for the people on staff who are doing this i mean this book is not about how staff members need to do financial management more effectively but the reality is a lot of people who are executive directors or even finance directors need help and one of the goals of the finance committee is to give them that help when they need it so a way to think about this is excuse me if the board is operating at a high altitude and the staff is down on the ground flashing through the weeds the finance committee is sort of in the middle they're providing a bridge between those
0: two groups of people and so that means that financial dashboard is for the whole board to review right heck yes absolutely was that a heck yes was that a hell you could say hell yes it's okay yes okay uh, right. haven't we have another question uh, on from Twitter um, Reminding listeners, you can join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag #NonprofitRadio. Uh, board members need to look at the impact of the organization. Uh, Andy, I guess this is for you since you talked about impact. How do you measure if you're meeting your mission or not? I guess she's looking for a little more detail.
1: Okay. Well, um, obviously, in it depends what your mission fields,
0: is.
1: There are some standard benchmarks for how you're doing. Uh, If you work with substance abuse, there are networks that do that, that can talk about ways of tracking your impact. For example, how many people come through a program, get clean and stay clean. If you are a food bank and you're delivering food to the community, there's a number of metrics there that come out of America or America's Harvest. I forget the name of the national network, but they'll tell you. How much money you should be spending, more or less, based on the population that you're serving, and how much many pounds of food you can put out into the community. Pretty much every nonprofit um, subset has some metrics that are relevant, and the trick is to learn the ones that are relevant to your type of organization, and then try and adapt them to your particular need.
0: And that would be important for the executive director to be recognizing, certainly, and then right, and then conveying that to the board.
1: Uh, yes, and. and in some cases, depending on the size of the organization, there is some board work to help find those numbers. I mean, I work a lot with really small organizations who have, whose staff are overwhelmed. And it would be great to say to a finance committee on a, a volunteer basis, I'm trying to figure out what the relevant metrics are for I type, our type of organization. Who would be willing to do some research and bring that back to us to at a board meeting? But, you know, in a, in a larger organization, yeah, that's going to fault the staff.
0: One of the other questions we asked uh, pre-show was, does your board have a committee devoted to financial issues? About 80% said yes, and the remainder, roughly 20%, said no. Um, Nancy, does there does there have to be a, a finance committee?
2: Um, there does not have to be a finance committee. I think it really depends on the size of the organization, um, the level of support that the director might need um, in, you know, uh, how complex the organization is and uh, as w- also how savvy uh, the board is. If most of the board understands financials and feels quite comfortable with it in a small organization, um, you could get away without a, a finance committee. Um, I'd say you want one in any organization that's about to undertake any kind of major um, financial growth or change or um, uh, new initiative um, in a larger organization um, it just is a great way to assist um, either the, the finance manager or the executive director in developing budgets and exercising oversight because things don't happen as, exactly as people plan them to.
0: With me today are Andy Robinson and Nancy Wasserman, co-authors of the board members Easier Than You Think Guide to Nonprofit Finances. Um, let's Let's talk some about uh, diversifying income sources. Uh, Nancy, you, you make a point of uh, having that in a, a couple of chapters of the book. Um, why is that important first?
2: Um, you never want to be totally reliant on just one funder. Um, you don't want to be in a situation where um, if that one funder suddenly says, uh, we don't like what you're doing, um, that you're suddenly scrambling and having to find um, uh, other ways to support your activities and, and your programs and, and what you do for the, for folks in the community.
0: I think we've seen a lot of that in, in our recession, uh, agencies that rely exclusively or too heavily on, say, government fees for services or maybe even government agency grants or, and or foundation grants, uh, those of all sources that have been cut back
2: indeed that's true and and that's part of what um the it's both diversifying types of financial support but also um the number of supporters within each type so you're not totally reliant on just one foundation or one uh, charitable donor um and uh, and that you have that diversity of donors and foundations and government and uh, your own revenues if there's a way for you to do
0: that. We have a comment uh, again from Twitter. Um, I'm just going to point out to uh, the person who wrote that, John, that uh, we did talk earlier about individual uh, personal liability for nonprofits. You may have missed that part of the show, but you can always catch it on the archive uh, on iTunes, and our iTunes page is nonprofitradio.net. Then um, what are, Andy, some of the sources of income that a nonprofit might look to that uh, that they're not currently exploiting
1: well there's three big buckets here tony the first bucket is private giving private giving is foundations corporations individuals and of course requests people leave behind when they pass away the big category there is individuals and within private giving about eighty percent of the money year after year comes from people and most of the groups that i work with don't invest enough time and energy raising money from individual donors. So that's the first category. second category is public funding. That's government funding from federal, state, local, regional, municipal, all the government levels. And as you already indicated, this is a shrinking resource right now. And the groups that I think are getting hammered, the worst during the recession, are the groups that are relying on government. The third bucket is earned income, which is nonprofits charging for the services they provide or in some cases selling goods to the community. And of the three, that's the biggest of all, this is sort of the surprise for people, is that earned income is about the same amount as private and public funding put together when you look at all the nonprofits across the
0: country. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you don't generally see that in in uh, fundraising reports like the giving USA because earned income is not part of their, their survey. Talking about
1: private philanthropy there. Now, right. to be very clear, the number's a little skewed, because if you're a private college and you're charging tuition, that shows up as earned income. If you're a private hospital and you're charging, a nonprofit hospital, and you're charging for medical services, that shows up as earned income. So those numbers really sort of skew the data. But I work with a number of organizations where I'm always pushing them to say, is there something you do that you can package up and sell? Do you have some skill that people would buy from you?
0: It's time for a break. Turn to communications. Where would you like to be heard? News outlets? Conferences? podcasts, blogs, that's all earned media and Turn 2 can help you get it. They've got the relationships. What about your media? That's owned media. Turn 2 can help you improve that as well because your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. It's time for Tony's Take 2. Plan Giving Accelerator is the online membership community that I have created to teach you how to launch your planned giving program. I'll teach you step by step through trainings, live trainings, resources, podcasts, ask me anything sessions. All of those are each month, and we will get your planned giving program launched. Members of the first class, the one that started in January, some of them already had gifts by three months in, by March. So three months into a 12 month class, gift commitments already coming. So that can happen for you too. You can be getting gift commitments in the first three months. The next class starts July 1st. I have priced this very reasonably especially when you consider, well, first of all, it's just reasonable. But then when you consider that the average charitable bequest is $35,000, take a look. It's all at plannedgivingaccelerator.com. And that is Tony's Take Two. We have Buku, but loads more time for BFD, Board Financial's Dilemma. Andy Robinson and Nancy Wasserman are with me. We're talking about BFD, board financials dilemma. Andy, earned income. What what can a charity possibly do, uh, or what should they be looking at to uh, try to make some money off their activities, their work?
1: Well, the question I always ask groups that are wondering about this is, what do you have, what do you do, or what do you know somebody else want to have or do or know? Most nonprofits are in the service business. I mean, we we deliver services. Sometimes we have expertise in that area, and you know, I mean, there's a sort of structured brainstorm that people can do around this. A lot of what we do in the nonprofit world is give it away, and the really entrepreneurial organizations look at what they're giving away and they say, it's paying market for this?" And you know, we can we can spend the rest of the show talking about this. I don't know if you want to, but. Um, there's a lot of opportunities there, and I see many, many organizations could be more self-sufficient financially if they got at figuring out what they know and how to package it up. And-
0: okay. Is there an example you can share with us, a, a charity that didn't realize what they had and and then ended up being able to exploit it and make some money from it?
1: Well, I'm, I'm the author of a book on this subject called Selling Social Change, and what's my favorite example of this um you know i for a group for years in tucson arizona called native search they are a seed bank on native american crops and you know what they do is protect seeds from going extinct by planting them and growing them and distributing them and probably 30 percent of their of their income is seed sales i mean they're a seed bank and they're a seed they sell it what they recently started doing which was fascinating is they opened something they called seed school And these are people who want to learn about how to protect seeds, grow them, pass them on to the next generation, really about sort of biological and genetic. Mm -hmm. People pay money and they come to Arizona for a week and they get trained in everything you need to know to run your own seed bank. And is an organization that was sitting on this pledge for probably 30 years only recently realized that people would pay for that knowledge in a classroom setting.
0: Oh, they had been doing that all for free.
1: Well, they hadn't been training other people. they have been taking care of the seeds, but they hadn't been teaching other oh, people. Oh,
0: I see. Okay.
1: And they realized there are, there, you know, there's a, a whole renaissance of, of local agriculture in our country right now, and they thought, we could tap into this. There's a market here for people who want to learn how to do this. And so they've started doing this, and they're doing this four or five times a year, and it sells out, and they're starting to move it around to other parts of the country. So, I mean, that's one example.
0: That's an example of, of knowledge. They, they had a knowledge and a skill that was very marketable.
1: That's right. And until you have, you know, what you need, unfortunately, for better words, is you need someone in the organization who has an entrepreneurial gene who can look around and say, you know what, somebody's going to want to buy this. And not every nonprofit is blessed with people who think that way. And I think part of what Nancy and I are trying to do in our professional lives is to get more of that thinking out into the nonprofit community.
0: Andy, related to uh, diversifying income, I, I had a comment from uh, LinkedIn this uh, woman had uh, just had a board meeting this earlier this week, regarding the need for transparency and distribution of responsibility when it comes to the finances, bookkeeping, and reporting function of their historic nonprofit theater. Cool. They've, they've been doing their thing; uh, they've been doing things their way a long time. And one big problem is that they have a banker on the board, and he doesn't see the problems. Um, so it sounds like, and, and then she says, "I was able to get the." check writing privileges move to another person. This is sort of segueing into uh, a conflict of interest conversation, but it sounds like maybe he was the only one writing checks. Um, I secured a nice grant from a foundation and they want a financial audit. I'm moving for a review. However, fear we won't get any more money once it's known how ignorant the board is about (laughs) accountability. Uh, Nancy, uh, Andy's laughing. Nancy, let's bring you back. What, What would you what would you say there?
2: Well, you know, how are we defining accountability here? Is there a lack of what a financial audit might uncover um, is impropriety, but it sounds like that's not the case. Um, more likely, it's going to, um, it's not the financial audit per se, but the the Form 990 that you file with the IRS, which asks you now um, to tell us, does, does the board look at financials? Um, how does is the board informed? Has the board seen an audit um, uh did they review it and approve it um it's really um you know there there's sort of two sets of questions the the very pragmatic did did you get an audit did you review it did you look at it um and then the the more important question in my mind, which I think is the question we 're trying to answer with the whole book, which is does the board really understand what all these numbers are telling them? And ideally, with a with a financial audit, an accountant has come in and um, spoken directly with the board of directors and walked through each and every page of it and talked about why the financials are the way they are and what they mean. Um, and I, I think both Andy and I have seen, you know, numbers of organizations where um, there's a lot of people sitting around the table and they leave it to the banker. Um, or the investment professional to, to, you know, they well they know about numbers and they handle it, and it's really something that everybody needs to know how to do, um, if only to make sure that the mission of the organization is is uh, fully addressed by by the board and the organization.
0: This also relates to uh, the conversation about diversifying income. I mean, here you know, this woman, uh, I believe she's a fundraiser there, a volunteer fundraiser, and uh, you know, trying to diversify income source. Getting a grant, but fearful that the grant may not be renewed because there isn't the uh, transparency and accountability that that the uh, the the uh, grant source will probably be seeking.
1: Yeah, and this is another point that was raised. sort of came at it sideways is this question about separation of duties, which is you know in a healthy organization people break up that work. I mean, one person opens the envelope and somebody else writes the checks and somebody else approves them and somebody else uh, gets the uh, bank statement and balances the checkbook. And the idea here is that you're trying to avoid um, mischief. Yeah, and... Uh, fraud. Right. And if somebody says, oh, I'll take care of all of these things, you know, maybe they're, they have good intentions and they're going to be perfectly honest about it, but you really need to break that into separate pieces so people can have oversight over each
0: other. Let's segue into the conflict of interest. Um, Andy, uh, define for us what a conflict of interest is. We hear it so often.
1: Yeah, well, my sense of it, at least in terms of the context we're having here, is that if you serve on a nonprofit board, your job is to put the needs of the organization above your own personal needs. And where this plays out sometimes is people who try and receive a benefit from serving on a board that's a personal benefit that has nothing to do with advancing the mission of the organization. Where this gets tricky is that in a lot of voluntary organizations, there are inherent conflicts of interest. So if, if you goes to a private school and you're on the board, your job is to advocate for policies that are going to benefit the children in the school, and in some cases that means they're going to benefit your kid individually. And sort of sorting those things out can be challenging, but the bottom line is, the decisions you make have to put the needs of the organization in front of your own personal needs.
0: Nancy, how can we try to avoid conflicts of interest?
2: Um, one of the best ways is to have a, a written conflict of interest policy where you've already addressed some of the situations that are likely to happen before they happen, um, where you sit there and say, you know, um, define what it is that is seen as either a real conflict of interest or a perceived conflict of interest. Um, which might be a case where um, somebody was, uh, for example, um, can somebody bid, somebody who serves on a board of directors bid on a project while they're still on the board of directors or not? Or do they have to resign before they even submit a bid? Or do they only resign um, if they're awarded the bid? Or do they have to resign or can they simply step out of the room for the discussion? Um, those are the kinds of questions that got kind of, uh, can get kind of challenging. Um, particularly when any member of the board stands to benefit financially um, from any decision of the board Um, that's uh, an outright in my mind an outright conflict of interest Um, and uh, in most boards you want to make sure that person doesn't participate and it's it's always easier to have that discussion um, when there isn't a a hot potato sitting in the room that's um, somebody's thinking that they they have every right to be part of the discussion, um, and you have to therefore bring up both the fact that um, somebody in the room is feeling uncomfortable that this person is present, um, and um, it gets a little bit uh, more tense in those sorts of situations.
0: Prevention is... As opposed to
2: having a, a written... Policy that folks have already talked through, and everybody feels responsible for making sure it 's enforced
0: so prevention uh, ahead of time, much better than dealing with it when it 's a a crisis or a potential crisis um,
2: right and it, it you know it also um, is the transparency issue. you want to make sure that, that your presentation to the community at large is um, it, it, is as an accountable organization um, that that gives everybody um, equal opportunity to benefit from um, the organization's purchases.
0: Is this the kind of policy that a board member should uh, sign and review every year or something like that?
2: It's not a bad idea.
0: Oh, okay. It, you
2: know, it, it, it depends on the nature of the organization. I, you know, I've worked with a community loan fund, and that's absolutely required that you disclose um, your conflicts of interest each and every year and that you um, review the conflict of interest policy every year. Um the other thing that's, you know, incredibly important is disclose, disclose, disclose. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, we have just a minute before a break. Andy, anything you want to add to conflict of interest discussion?
1: I think the main thing is that if you see it, you have to name it. You have to If you're a board member and you smell something like this, you have to have the courage to bring it up. And as Nancy said, it's much easier to do this if there's an existing policy in place first.
0: If somebody sees something like this, Andy, again, just a few seconds before a break, who should they bring it up to? You're, I'm a board member. Who, who do I talk to?
1: Well, I would probably go to the chair first and say, I think there's something fishy here. Let's talk about it. And I would start there, and then presumably the board, the chair will bring it to the full board.
0: Welcome back to Big Nonprofit Ideas for the Other 95% on Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Nancy, let's talk a little about uh, financial statements. What, what, uh, what are the basics first? What's the overview?
2: Um, there's really two major statements that everybody um, has to deliver. One's the balance sheet, which is a snapshot on any given day, um, typically the end of the month or the end of the quarter or the end of the year, um, which outlines um, what the organization owns and what they owe and what they're worth, which is the difference between everything they own um, less everything they owe um, as far as its paper value is what they would be worth on that day. Uh, the other major statement is the statement of activities, also called a profit and loss or a P&L, um, which is where do you get all your money, your income, your revenues from, um, and then what does it go to pay for, all your expenses, and the bottom line there is your net income at the end of end of a certain time period. The statement of activities is more like a movie. It covers a period of time. Uh, typically uh, the beginning of the year to the end of the most previous sorry the, the most recent month um, so if we were on a board uh, today we probably wouldn't see the the, the uh, statement of activities through the end of February because somebody would have had to have it all cleaned up as of yesterday but we could expect to see something through the end of January um, and depending on what your fiscal year was um, would determine the be- the
0: beginning period. We talked earlier about uh, full disclosure, so I'm going to make a disclosure. The only accounting course that I've ever taken, I dropped out of, because I was I, I was I was going to fail. So um, so I'm like perfect for this book. This it's very informative and it is an easy read and it is a helpful guide. Um, Nancy, help me understand. I this has always seemed like magic to me, on a balance sheet. How is it? that the assets equal the liabilities. How does that always come out so equal? I mean, uh, it's intended that way, obviously.
2: It, it, How does that it, possible? It, it, it seems it, like magic. Um, it, it, now you're asking somebody who who was not trained as a classically trained accountant. Oh, you can't pull back now. now your name
0: is on the book. Your name is <laughs> here. I'm looking right at it. It says Nancy Washerman.
2: <laughs> but it's um it's based on double entry bookkeeping which was developed by the Chinese and it's uh follows up from the abacus and Um, Really, was sort of uh, amplified by the Italians in the uh, Renaissance. And essentially, when you put an entry in double-entry bookkeeping, everything that goes up, something has to go down, and uh, it it all balances out in the end. And the cash comes out. And if your balance sheet, that's like number one. If the balance sheet, if the total assets does not equal the total liabilities and equity. it is an incorrectly prepared balance sheet. There's okay. a reason they call it a balance
0: sheet. Right. It ba- yes, exactly. Well, I love that my Italian forebears had something to do with confusing Absolutely. me now in the current day. Um, okay. what? How can we help uh, board members, Nancy, who whose eyes kind of glaze over when they get to the balance sheet, aside from looking to see whether the two uh, the assets and liabilities equal, you know, which of, they always do?
2: Right. Step number one, do yeah. so they balance? Um, number two... Um, do your total current assets, in other words, what what can be cash within a year's time, um, exceed your current liabilities, the things you have to pay off with cash in, in a year's time? And so, are you liquid or not? Do you have do you have cash um, available to do things? Um, this is the place where you're looking for those payroll liabilities or payroll tax liabilities. If there's a A number there that's frighteningly large Um, you've got a big problem and if it's payroll tax liabilities uh, you as a board member may be personally liable Um, what do your long-term liabilities look like is that that's your debt basically and you know does it make sense to you is that number reflect the debt you know the organization has Um, your net net assets now you know the language of accounting is kind of like Greek, and um, I, I sometimes think they made up all these names to make it even more confusing.
0: It would be so much but, easier if it was it was Italian. It, it could be. It would be. It could it be. It would. There's a, lots of cognates, and it's a Romance language. I, I think it would be. Oh, I'm sorry. The,
2: no problem. But that that total net assets number, which simply means you know what what's this organization worth. Um, if it if it had to liquidate today, and um, if that's a negative number, you should be concerned. Um, and and there's certainly many organizations where that is the case. Um, so th- those are the big things on the balance sheet. You know, does it does it sort of make sense to you? Do the the fixed assets and their their value um, feel like what you have? If you suddenly see something that shows that you have a fixed asset of uh, you know equipment worth a hundred thousand dollars and you're scratching your head because you have no idea what you have for equipment. Um, something's wrong with the balance. And
0: and you should, and you should ask that question. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier, frighteningly large numbers. I mean, is part of what we should be doing, looking for anomalies?
2: Um, that's really it. You're looking, you're looking for things that, you know, that don't make sense or don't feel right, or that you can't, um, if you can't, if it doesn't feel right and it, you can't really explain it. You want to ask questions. Um, and, and the numbers, you know, the thing about numbers is um, they're pretty, um, they're very, you know, they're either on or off, um, and um, it's harder to lie with numbers. Um, so you're going to know right away. The, the You could have frighteningly large numbers with a, with a complex organization, and that would be fine. Um, if if they're, they're balanced out, if there's um, cash in the bank, if it feels like there's equity.
0: This is uh, a critical subject. Uh, another question that I asked on the, uh, the uh, pre-show survey is, uh, for those charities that do have a board committee devoted to financial issues, are you confident that each committee member is fluent in your numbers and understands your financial position? Only 25% said yes. The uh, oh. remaining 75% were either no or not sure. And, and no was pretty large, about 60%. Oh. We, we have to stop there. Andy Robinson and Nancy Wasserman are co-authors of the board members, easier than you think guide to nonprofit finances published by Emerson and church. Andy, Nancy, thank you very much for being guests.
2: Thank you, Tony. Uh, Thanks
0: for having us, Tony. It's been a real pleasure. And also thanks to uh, your publisher, Kathleen Brennan uh, at Emerson and church for her promotion assistance for the show. That was fun. A bit of nostalgia. I had to keep in a, a short burst of Eye of the Tiger. Had, <laughs> had to do that. Thank you for romping back in time with me. Next week, our 2021 Nonprofit Technology Conference coverage continues. Ooh, ooh, conference coverage continues. I like that. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you. Find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn 2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits, Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great.